When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When Diplomacy Fails presents A Master's Dissertation by Zach Twomley Chapter 4 The Case of Belgium and the Discourse of Honour British opinion remained divided as to its foreign policy direction even as Sir Edward Grey stood up to present his speech at 3pm on the 3rd of August 1914. The day before had borne witness to a gradual shift in cabinet position, but the process was far from complete and neither Prime Minister Asquith's government nor the country were prepared for a major European war. Grey's speech was multi-layered. It addressed Britain's commitments to France carefully, continued to emphasise that Britain had a free hand in Europe, and it drove home emotional arguments by invoking honour and morality-based rationalisation. The task of this chapter is to highlight the case of Belgium as a prime example of the use of honour by examining the parliamentary debates of the 3rd of August 1914. Belgium had not been a straightforward case for British statesmen. Due to its later importance and symbolism for the Allies, there has been a tendency to depict Belgium as the issue that transformed British opinion among the citizens, statesmen and media. Yet, in the days leading up to her invasion by German forces, some in Britain debated the validity of the Belgian treaties and whether they could still apply to the current crisis. There was also concern as to whether Belgium would resist the German invasion in whatever form it took and the acknowledgement therein that Britain could not be more Belgian than the Belgians. The situation had also changed since 1870, and a lack of diplomatic clarity, combined with colonial affairs, had blurred the certainty of obligation somewhat. Podcast footnote Belgian atrocities in the Congo and the very public campaign in Britain to investigate and denounce them in the early 20th century did much to blacken Belgium's image. Many British statesmen expected Belgium to give in to German demands after a token display of resistance. Such a Belgian policy would grant Britain's interventionist camp no chance to use Belgium as its tool for justifying intervention, since if the Belgians didn't resist, how could Britain resist on Belgium's behalf? End podcast footnote. 
However, Sir Edward Grey had suspected in the days before that Belgium would become an important issue. In a telegram to Britain's ambassador to Germany, he wrote on the 1st of August that If there was a violation of the neutrality of Belgium, it would be extremely difficult to restrain public opinion. The next day, to the French ambassador, Grey claimed the cabinet was debating whether we should declare Belgium to be a casus belli. Retrospectively, the statesmen of the era would justify their own conduct at the time within their memoirs, when in particular David Lloyd George would note that I never doubted that, if the Germans interfered with the integrity and independence of Belgium, we were in honour bound to discharge our treaty obligations to that country. Lloyd George's account has since come under scrutiny from no less than his mistress and eventual second wife Frances, who claimed that Belgium served merely as the heaven-sent excuse for Britain to intervene. Indeed, historian Bentley Gilbert argued that Lloyd George was more concerned about preventing France from being overrun by a German invasion, and that the issue of Belgium, which Lloyd George had suspected would arise since 1911, provided a ethical umbrella under which the younger members could honourably return to the party. Whatever about Lloyd George's true motives, Winston Churchill also attested to the Belgian treaties as indisputably an obligation of honour binding upon the British state. Grey also believed that Britain was bound by honour to aid Belgium, and it was his task to persuade the House of Commons that Britain's triplet concerns of honour, interest and security were not only one and the same, but that they were in critical danger. As Christopher Clarke noted, quote, The prospect that Parliament might not honour the moral obligations to France caused him, Grey, profound anxiety. End quote. If the French coast's issue failed to ignite the nation, Grey would have to redirect their passions onto the Belgian issue. From the beginning of his speech, Grey explained that he wished the House to approach the crisis from the point of view of British interests, British honour and British obligations. Grey stressed his belief in the importance of being able to say to the House that it was free to decide what the British attitude should be, that we would have no secret engagements which we should spring upon the House and tell the House that, because we had entered into that engagement, there was an obligation of honour upon the country. Grey wished to dispel the ideas that Britain was either committed to France by some secret diplomacy, or that such secret diplomacy, while non-binding, would infer a moral obligation that Britain could not forsake without a loss of honour. Grey produced a telegram from 1912 which suggested a French understanding of the fact that, just because Britain and France had divided the seas into different spheres of influence and operation, this did not mean Britain was compelled to assist France in the event of war. This backtracking was done, Grey explained, to clear the ground from our point of view of obligations. Then Grey began to introduce one of his major objectives of the speech, noting that, For many years we have had a long-standing friendship with France, but how far that friendship entails obligation, let every man look into his own heart and his own feelings and construe the extent of the obligation for himself. We are left in little doubt as to what Grey construed the extent of the obligation to be, when he noted that, 
the French fleet is now in the Mediterranean, and the northern and western coasts of France are completely undefended. Grey thus advanced the same honour-based coast arguments to the House that he had expressed to his colleagues over the previous days. With only the Royal Navy to defend the French coasts, this meant that, should Britain stay neutral, these coasts would be vulnerable to attack. France was only in this position, Grey and his like-minded colleagues would argue, because of her agreements with Britain. Therefore, Grey argued, if these coasts were attacked, we could not stand aside and see this going on practically within sight of our eyes, with our arms folded, looking on dispassionately, doing nothing. I believe that would be the feeling of this country. The idea that Britain would be dispassionate and uncaring about the plight of France sounded in itself like an immoral state of affairs, and indeed Gray's presentation of the scenario was effective. He then declared that France was entitled to know and know at once about Britain's policy, should her coasts come under attack. Gray then addressed the Belgian issue by introducing speeches made by leading British statesmen of the previous century, insisting that The honour and interests are, at least, as strong today as in 1870, and we cannot take a more narrow view or a less serious view of our obligations. Podcast footnote. It was in 1870, during the Franco-Prussian War, that Britain sought guarantees from both warring parties, Prussia and France, to ensure Belgian sovereignty. Britain was, in 1870, willing to wage war against either country for the sake of Belgium and Grey expected to take the same stance again here. End podcast footnote. Outlining nightmarish visions of the future in which Belgium, Denmark and the Netherlands were absorbed by a rampant German empire, Grey depicted a British empire in despair if she failed in her obligations to Belgium, and if, in a crisis like this, we run away from those obligations of honour and interests as regards the Belgian treaty, I doubt whether, whatever material force we might have at the end, it would be of much value in the face of the respect that we should have lost. Defining paths of honour or shame, where the former sees Britain act on Belgium's behalf and the latter sees her shirk her responsibilities to Belgium, and thus suffer immense damage to her prestige, was by now a familiar argument of the interventionists. Grey reiterated the image of a Europe torn asunder, and a Britain unable to rectify the crushing alterations to the balance of power. Yet Grey claimed he was also sure that our moral position would be such as to have lost us all respect. Only a few minutes later, Grey emphasised that outcome again. Should Britain absolve herself of the Belgian Treaty and denounce its obligations altogether, she would sacrifice respect her good name and her reputation before the world. The immediate reactions to Gray's speech warrant close examination. Andrew Bonner Law, leader of the Conservative Party, echoed support for Gray by stating, Whatever steps they think necessary to take for the honour and security of this country, they can rely on the unhesitating support of the opposition. Bonner Law demonstrated his belief in the necessity of maintaining Britain's honour, an entity he believed at stake in these negotiations. Yet it is the comments from the anti-interventionist Labour MP, Ramsay MacDonald, that are some of the most revealing. MacDonald insisted that, If the nation's honour were in danger, we would be with him, 
There has been no crime committed by statesmen of this character without those statesmen first appealing to their nation's honour. He, Grey, is appealing to us today because of our honour. It is important to clarify the significance of MacDonald's statement here. Far from an appeal against honour, MacDonald instead asserted its importance. Honour, as MacDonald understood it, was not at stake, but if it were, then he would support British intervention. However, in contrast to Grey, MacDonald believed that his country's honour was preserved by remaining neutral. Because in the deepest parts of our hearts we believed that that was right, and that that alone was consistent with the honour of the country and the traditions of the party that are now in office. It was then decided, after some struggle, to postpone debate about Gray's speech and its contents until 7pm that evening. The man whose speech placed them there, Sir Edward Gray, planned to only put in a brief appearance. Gray opened this new round of debates with some stunning news for those seated in the house at 7pm. Producing the text of the German ultimatum to Belgium of the night before, which he had been unable to make use of in his earlier speech, Gray noted that, The Belgians have answered that an attack on their neutrality would be a flagrant violation of the rights of nations, and that to accept the German proposal would be to sacrifice the honour of a nation. This momentous development was a blessing in disguise for the divided house, which would have to unite to answer the German aggression against a state whose neutrality they had guaranteed. Should they fail to aid a defenceless Belgium now, the sincerity and honour of Britain would be ruined, and her prestige and security would surely follow. Yet even at this late stage, it was not so simple. Many MPs remained determined to voice their opinion not about Belgium, but about Gray's presentation earlier that day, which they had not yet been given an opportunity to properly debate. Gray's exit from the House shortly after his stirring announcement did not deter Liberal MP Philip Morell, who asserted that, in his view, it was perfectly possible for Gray and the government to arrange an honourable neutrality with Germany, a neutrality which would be perfectly honourable to this country. Morell no doubt echoed the exasperation of his colleagues when he protested that no one a week ago could have foreseen that we were going to take a step like this and added a warning that, If we engage in war, we shall suffer, I, I believe, as regards our influence in Europe. Again, here was the plea not only to see peace with honour, but that the ability of Britain to influence other nations, a variant of prestige, would be damaged. Also of note was Liberal MP Percy Moltino, son of South Africa's first Prime Minister, who did not take long to signal to Grey that he had not been convinced and that he did not appreciate the Foreign Secretary's circular logic. Gray began by saying that we were under no obligations, and that the House was perfectly free to come to a decision on this matter. Yet before he had got very far, he told us that we were under such obligations, and that, in his opinion, we could not get rid of them. Maltino claimed that Gray and his supporters were continuing to speak to us of some vague fear, some sort of obligation of honour that impels us to this course. The radical, Tasmanian-born advocate of land reform and Liberal MP Robert Leonard Outhwaite claimed that while Gray had spoken, 
In every sentence he uttered, I hoped that some justification would come for it. I looked for some justification for the shedding of blood and from the casting on one side of the moral obligations that I always thought greater than any treaty obligations. But I did not get it. This vivid response again confirms the value of honour. Outhwaite's explicit statement that he'd always thought moral obligations greater than treaty obligations is revealing of the mindset of the time. By his very admittance of their inherent importance, Outhwaite contributes to a common theme of this dissertation, that moral obligations could, and often did, possess more actual power than legal obligations. Had this not been the case, it would not have been possible in days past to manipulate the terms of the Entente through the use of honour-based arguments. It was to Gray's misfortune that he proved unable to persuade men like Outhwaite that such moral obligations were at stake here. Addressing the Belgian issue, Liberal MP Sir John Jardine claimed that the matter of going through Belgium might be accomplished without the loss of honour. Podcast footnote. An idea put forward by many in the previous debates about Belgium went that if Germany marched over only a southern portion of Belgium for the sole purpose of reaching France, then Britain could not launch much of a protest. It was only, most believed, if Germany committed the action of a total invasion of Belgium that her treaty obligations to Belgium would come into effect. End podcast footnote. The pacifist Liberal MP and owner of the Yorkshire Observer, William Biles, noted scathingly that it was not a war of national defence. It was a war launched to defend our honour. I hope I do not value honour more lightly than any of my colleagues. We are to hire a number of men, a number of soldiers, to go and blow out the brains of another number of men, to vindicate our honour. Biles was not the only Liberal MP to look unfavourably upon honour. James Bryce would also note, with a similar sneer, that In this course of events, we have the French joining the Russians on a point of honour, and we are joining the French on a point of honour. A regular house that Jack built. Bryce would later lead a significant wartime investigation into German atrocities, wherein ideas of dishonour and crimes against morality took centre stage. Despite his pronouncements here then, honour was not imaginary. To some statesmen it was not worth the trouble it caused, but no individual could ignore it. They had either to accept it, argue that it did not apply, or dismiss it with very good reason. Throughout the day, anti-interventionists had argued passionately that, not only was Britain's honour not at stake, but that only neutrality could preserve that honour. Interventionists, and Sir Edward Grey in particular, had argued from the outset that British honour would be void if she failed to aid France, and now Belgium, in their times of great need. Britain's course would soon be decided. The next day it would be learned that Germany had invaded Belgium and declared war on France. In retrospect, though Gray's speech was not as well received as either his like-minded contemporaries or historians like to imagine, the pace of events and the rapidly vanishing opportunities for peace would transform Belgium, not into the slow-burning issue that it was, but into the crux upon which virtually every British moral argument for intervention became based. Retrospective British statesmen, and indeed some historians, would be able to claim that the war had been launched in the name of such honourable values as justice, prestige and morality. 
As each month passed and the war intensified, as the actors in the war were recast into good and evil roles, these arguments, far from being outdated now that the war had begun, became even more important than before, and the great issues at stake received even more attention. These debates in the evening of the 3rd of August had, for the most part, not contained leading government officials. But this should not detract from their importance. The presence of honour in their discourse testifies to that code's significance regardless of those statesmen's political impact. Had war not been declared the following day, the debates may well have continued. This dissertation miniseries has been divided into six parts for easier listening. You have reached the end of one part, but not the end of the entire miniseries, so please check your downloads for the remaining parts. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.